Welcome to The Emergent Human, where we explore optimizing health and body spirituality and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlank, a therapist, coach, and educator. I'm your host for today. Just a few short news items. Um, I'm going to be starting a certificate program from the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health, their Pre- and Perinatal Educator Certificate Program, probably here in November 2020. Uh, one of the reasons I'm looking into learning more about pre- and perinatal psychology and health is in my work with clients, first as a therapist and now as a coach, I'm beginning to, actually I'm not beginning to, I've seen a long time how a lot of people, a lot of the behaviors that people have, um, either interpersonal behaviors or the way they relate to themselves or even their health seems to be imprinted early on. And the imprinting is not just early in terms of their family of origin and they're five or six years old or seven years old or three years old, but actually prenatally and also around the birth time and then soon thereafter. So I want to get a bigger and deeper, not a bigger, a deeper grasp of that and see if there's two things that I can do. One, to unwind some of the more damaging aspects that adults have from that time period. And as I work with couples who want to become pregnant, perhaps I can educate them on ways that they can consider being pregnant, being with one another, being with their baby in such a way that reduces the negative consequences for some of these things I'll be learning and actually optimizing the health of the baby. And then also the connection between the baby, the mother and the father or whoever the family dynamics might be. So I'm looking forward to that and doing a deep dive. It's been uh, quite a few years. I did study that in grad school, which is in the late nineties. So I have to imagine the, the, the uh, science has improved and I'll be learning a lot of new things. Also want to do a shout out to uh, Kenny Kane. He's the owner of Oak Park Fitness in LA. A buddy of mine who's hooked me up with one of his coaches, Matt Nichols. He's a breathing coach. And I started working with Matt on Friday for some health issues I'm dealing with. Uh, looking forward to seeing how it benefits my overall health as well as my sleep. You can learn more about Matt's work at www.breathewithmatt.com. That'll be in the show notes. Looking forward to uh, seeing how that unfolds and had a great first session with him. So check him out. Uh, today's session is, today's conversation is brought to you by Scottsker Cosper Scafidi, an amazing body worker in the Northern Virginia area has integrated different somatic practices into his work. He is my rolfer. You can learn more about Cosper's work at www.cosperscafidi.com. Also be in the show notes. And I wanna welcome back Ryan Freisinger, this is our third conversation, but the second kind of in this line of, of, of area that we're gonna be discussing. He was on not too long ago and we talked about human animal um, relationships, the philosophy, practical application, things along those lines. We kind of finished the conversation um, beginning to talk about diet and nutrition, but we also kind of led in the direction of habitats and what kind of habitat is really appropriate for animals, period, but also domesticated animals uh, more particularly. And then it kind of led to our further conversations offline about human habitats and ecological restoration as a much broader issue. So Ryan's come back. Ryan, good to see you. To uh, jump into that conversation. So, you know, Ryan, for folks who didn't hear the first interview that we did a couple of years ago, where you talked about your biohacking, your work on genetics, uh, epigenetics, the last conversation where we talked about human-animal interaction and relationships and kinships. Can you just give us a brief bio 
especially how it relates to today's conversation, because you're so well educated in a wide variety of subjects. Yeah, so obviously, Michael, when we met, you know, it was through the, the lens of health and biohacking, and that's been many years ago. But um, I would say that for most of my 20s, and well, most of my 20s, all of them, uh, I was actually more in the kind of ecological environmental science and then in the theoretical realms in the humanities and, and specifically in something called post-humanism. So when I was doing my PhD, it definitely was an interdisciplinary pursuit. Um, I was a center or a fellow in the Center for Sustainable Cities at the University of Southern California. And I specifically chose to attend USC because I wanted to work on practical applications of environmental thinking in, in large cities like Los Angeles, where it's a massive multicultural place, lots of problems and, and kind of a case study for what's wrong with designing of human settlements built around automobiles and pollution and loss of habitat. So, yeah, I mean, I was an environmental artist in my early 20s doing kind of stuff that was rooted in environmental practices like harvesting atmospheric moisture in the Mojave Desert to fuel gardens. I built plant walls, some of the earliest plant walls commercially in Los Angeles as a grad student, um, and then really moved into a direct relationship, cultivating and growing medicinal plants from all over the world, uh, culminating in a one-year stay in the Peruvian Amazon uh, as I was writing my dissertation, which was focused on basically using shamanic and indigenous consciousness or forms of thinking where the human is nested in an environment, not the dominant of the environment and how that may translate into design practices. And part of my dissertation was reimagining all of the large uh, scale buildings in downtown Los Angeles as basically ecological structures. So I was imagining how would we change the skins of buildings to transform them into tree-like structures and how do you reintegrate animal pathways and carnivore kind of movement pathways and, and how those are integral to kind of controlling the healthy ecosystems. And then I also did a lot of work on micro remediation of super fun sites, especially brownfields um, and how those are kind of the best ways to deal with heavy metal pollution and petroleum pollution and things like that. So that really was, you know, my life and that work on the ecology of the world and on ecology and human animal nature relationships definitely informs how I think about the human body as a biohacker and these kind of integral processes of energy and how to, how to approach someone who's become sick um, and how to kind of look at that and frame it so you can actually move the states of the body effectively. And it's much more of an ecological approach than a kind of human approach. That makes sense. So that's 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 the long the long answer. <laughs> and I'll give a plug to your work because uh, I've been a client of yours for a couple of years, um, and I love your your holistic approach to the individual, but also how you've embedded the individual in a various social and natural ecologies. Um, yeah. So you know, longer conversation along that path. We've had you sure. discussing that before, but actually, yeah. so many years ago that I know because now we're working together again. Uh, that you have a whole new area of interest, or I shouldn't say a whole new area of interest, but a deeper dive into a, an area that maybe I'll have you back on to talk about in terms of health. Of the Absolutely. Individual. That'd be great. But let's talk about ecological restoration, human habitats, animal habitats. And I'll kind of leave it to you. You know, Where do you want to start? We can start at the very small scale where you talk about like me and my home, you and your home, or you are you also mentioned like, oh, well, let's redesign Los Angeles. 
where do you want to pop into this conversation? Um, maybe we can start kind of at the smallest node, which would be kind of your room that you're sitting in and then go out to the city and try to think of it as, I like if you know the paleo world, Art Devaney, who was very big into kind of primal eating. He was an economist at UCLA and he models kind of everything as a decentralized economy, including the human body. So that's kind of a good way to look at a node and then go out to the bigger ecology and then talk about things like the hinterlands and, and more kind of concepts of nature and how those are informing how we do things and, and whether or not they're sufficient to the cause. Um, so yeah, we can talk about the home environment. Um, do you want to start with anything in particular or do you want me to say something in particular about it? Well, I, I just think it'd be interesting and I want to make sure we include uh, domesticated animals in this conversation too, because one of the things that was clear in our last conversation was that <clears throat> as much as we love our domesticated animals, you know, there, there is a mismatch between conventionally how we approach them and how they've evolved over millions of years to, to be treated. Obviously they've modified because we've genetically modified them and et cetera, yeah. we've domesticated them, but they still have needs. Like last time we spoke, we talked about raw diets, which more reflects their actual needs than mm -hmm. conventional fake food that a lot of dogs now or cats do get. But I do want to point out, I found it fascinating because we, we can talk about this too, marketing advertisement. Like I see more and more advertisements on television, on the web for grain-free food for yeah. your pets. Now you still look at the ingredients. You're like, you know, okay. Some of those are, aren't, you know, they're grain free, but they're still full of crap. Yeah. Better, but not great. But then there's also some brands out there that are like, Whoa, Oh my God, this really reflects what they would have eat, naturally eaten in their natural environment, but put the diet aside, but let's make sure we also talk about our domesticated animals and what is needed for them okay. in our homes, in our neighborhoods. Yeah. So I think one of the ways to think about this is, is, there is a connection directly between human urbanization and structures that we dwell in and the domestication and control of animal bodies with industrial or pre-industrial agriculture. Um, clearly human beings at one point moved globally as a species along with seasons. Structures that they lived in were built from local materials that were reflective contextually of the environment that they came in. And that's what we would describe in architecture as a vernacular form of architecture. And unfortunately, as we're into the modern era, vernacular architecture is often a euphemism for kind of looking at something that's kind of dated and not sophisticated and low tech, though it's having a, a resurgence right now, um, especially as we realize that you can't place structure and ecosystems and not reference that system at all and expect to be healthy. Um, so looking at your living room, looking at mine, you know, li living in structures that are geometrically kind of linear, that have these dimensions that don't necessarily exist in the world um, is somewhat important considering that these box-like kind of multi-tiered structures allow you to centralize bodies and space. Um, but the consequences of that or the externalities of that, I think, are kind of what we're getting at here, which is we're both seated right now. We have climate controlled air. Um, we have unnatural lighting and then the animals that live with us rely on us for mobility needs. <laughs> so I don't necessarily think any of us are 
living in the most ideal environments, uh, especially on the tactile side of things. Like a lot of the interior design of, of, of architectural spaces is limited to functions that we want to repeatedly perform, but there's not a lot of novel learning. There's not a lot of engagement in the space, right? Other than rearranging your furniture and hanging the pictures in a new place. So I think where we're arriving is that we've built these abstracted spaces, which I think are both amazing in the sense that it's a testament to human creativity and terraforming and manipulation of space. But the bigger question is how we return back, which is what all these kind of movements, whether you're talking, I know you're a fan of MoveNAT and Erwin LaCour, and you talked about Katie Bowman a little bit in our private email leading up to this paleo eating CrossFit, like this whole attempt to go back to the beginning to recover some kind of elements that are missing that then we can program back into the body and get into better relationship. I, I don't, I'm kind of rambling here a little bit because it's hard to figure out how to exactly frame this, but there's a very famous book that in good architecture school. So just so I'm being transparent, half of my work in grad school was done in the architecture school at USC, mostly in landscape architecture, but I did take a lot of classes in regular architectural kind of more broad scale, like spatial design and things like that. And some of the stuff we were looking at is all about patterns and putting patterns into place. So there's a famous book called pattern thinking hmm. that looks at <clears throat> Basically, all the, whether it's Fibonacci sequences, these ratios that exist in the world that have aesthetic qualities that philosophers have talked about for time immemorial, including people like Aristotle, and how those make their way into design. And what happens when we depart from these kind of classical geometrics, or what we might call sacred geometry. So, um, I wish I would have known you in 98 or 99, because it just reminds me, because you're talking about the, the straight lines we have behind me and behind you. Yeah. During one of my shamanic sessions, it became very clear to me the effect on consciousness of some of these designs. And I, and I was walking around Lake Merritt out in- Oh yeah, the right like, there. Yeah. yeah, trying to like digest what just happened to me. Uh, and, I, and I was like, I need to call someone to talk because I don't know who to talk about this. I didn't have anyone. So I wish I had you back then because you could have <laughs> probably explained to me sacred geometry and its effect on consciousness please say more well so with some interesting things coming out of that thread there's a really cool book that i have it's 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 earth acupuncture and so i used it around my property to understand the energetic flows of the landscape and in in japanese kind of art, art there's something called wabi-sabi you know where you're essentially sitting in a landscape and observing the flows and this idea of observation, right? I keep coming back to it as a way of trying to unpack like how, how do things actually work? How can we watch the environment and maybe start to understand where the mismatches are? So if you look at sacred, like we always go back in architecture to classical places. We have the, the Greek architectural kind of things that we look at, the classical designs, the flying arches, the columns, the aqueducts, we look at places like the pyramids in Egypt. We look at all these sacred structures in Latin America. And if you look at all of them, not only do they have an otherworldly effect in terms of their aesthetic, but they also are so deeply innervated and, and kind of energized by the environment that they sit in, that they have a, a, a like definite spiritual power emanating from them. And when you look at what that actually looks like, a lot of the cultures that preexisted us had a much better understanding of energetic flows 
And so if you think about electromagnetic fields that are natural emanating from the magnetic core of the earth, a lot of these sacred and also mysterious places like Stonehenge and places like that, they're on these quote unquote ley lines. Okay. In these earth acupuncture points. And then these structures, you know, in the Kabbalah, you think of the Merkaba, which is this vehicle of, of transcendence where the person can travel, you know, interdimensionally through these kind of structures that are multiple pyramids infused into diamond shapes and things like that. That idea of, of structure being the seat and the container for consciousness, the idea of the body being the seat and container for our own consciousness is something that architecture used to have more inborn. And I think part of that is that when you use materials that are locally excavated, there's a certain logic that those materials possess and you can't enforce anything on them. If you think about how pyramids and vernacular structures are built, they not only have to survive the local climate, which is often extreme. So if you look at the most amazing pieces of vernacular architecture, they're in these deserts that don't, that are not really supportive of human life in these super cold places, but local materials have this kind of logic. And in Wabi Sabi, what you're trying to do is a philosophical practice. You're, you're sculpting a material based on the direction it wants to travel itself as an object. So you're just revealing as opposed to designing. And so that's something that when I was in grad school, I got a lot of heat for, and that was predominantly what I was arguing in my dissertation. Rather than being designers, we should allow and basically be creating open openings for succession. If we're caretaking or given stewardship, how can we open a space to its own like teleology? How does it unfold as it wants? And so with materials, you can actually do that pretty substantially. So there was a guy that I um, became really interested in in the desert, high desert of Los Angeles named Nadir Khalili, the Cal Earth Institute. He built basically structures that look like they came off of Tatooine and, and Star Wars, these beautiful, definitely Middle Eastern infused, but built from sand and sandbags. They had the seismic capacity to withstand, you know, 9.0 Richter scale earthquakes, very cheap, thermally massive. And so what you see overall is when we take materials, whether it's food, plants, animals, whether it's ge geological objects, and we interact with them in such a way to allow them to sculpt and us be the sculptor, but not the designer, you end up with these really interesting patterns that for whatever reason, have an openness to our unfolding that doesn't exist elsewhere. And so if you think about like meditating in pyramidal structures, you know, one of the things people experience is almost like an overwhelming of energy flowing through the crown of the head, almost overwhelming. Um, Mark Rothko, the famous abstraction painter, he has a chapel outside of Rice University in Houston, Texas. That's just these giant, basically look like purple mirrors. They're like 20 by 20 in this chapel of stone and they look like portals to other dimensions or the architect Louis Kahn, who's developed stuff in India and is pretty, he's dead now, but they look like transportive kind of vehicles to other dimensions, these really high forms of architecture. And so I think what you're getting at with talking about like structure and spiritual uh, unfolding is that they used to be heavily linked to one another. And in fact, there's a reason why when you walk into cathedrals anywhere, 
that exaltedness and that uplift and that feeling, it doesn't matter even if you're an atheist, there's a, a feeling of that flying kind of upward spiritual energy. And that largely has been lost in a more modernist technocratic society that that stuff is actually looked at as not being interesting. Um, that you move towards a more humanistic kind of Western designer role and space has changed. And, and I'm not so sure it's always a bad thing, but it certainly has complicated things. And now, especially as we infuse those spaces with other unnatural forms of energy, like electromagnetic fields, like 5G and, and dirty electricity and things like that. So kind of rambling a little bit here, that's where I used again, but it's a very complex thing, but that's kind of how I started to think about space. Um, and, and realizing uh, David Lynch, if you know, you know the famous film director, auteur, Twin Peaks, et cetera. He had this really great line in this book called Catching the Big Fish, which is essentially about artistic inspiration and how we gather it and express it. And he basically said, you have to have a setup and that setup should be conducive to creating whatever it is you're looking to create. And I think thinking back in my own life at that time as a grad student, I ended up renting a small space in downtown LA just to write in because I couldn't productively create in my home and my office at the university. And so I think a lot about that is space becomes a place where we lay our head and cook our food. Shelter is this kind of base of the Maslow's hierarchy, but not shelter as this place for expansion and, and growth and unfolding. And that's kind of what I found interesting with looking at people who seem to be able to continually grow and evolve as beings and, and maybe have healthier lives in general in the spaces that they inhabit. And it's not just a matter of are they sitting or not? Are they moving naturally or not? It's also whether or not the space is configured to essentially move energy appropriately. And then you get into you know things like feng shui and all these other cultures, right, that have tried to map these um, these concepts. But I thought a lot about this stuff and what it was the, the general theme that I saw across disciplines that were in interfacing with design is that the best designs design themselves. And the person was almost acting as a cipher for that information that wanted to be put out in the world. Right. And if we think about our built environment, how much agency does any given person have over what that looks like? We have codes that for the most part prevent certain types of novel architectural structures, which, you know, you can understand. Um, you don't necessarily want to have an eclectic city in the sense of th there's no harmony, there's no social contract in place, but there's a lot of ways in which we're forced to kind of design in ways that are so antiquated and counter to human health and safety that it's almost laughable that, 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 you, that we're even trying these things. And then you have these mega architectural structures in places like Dubai where the creative impulse is whatever you want it to be until the water runs out um, where you're starting to see these really interesting things like uh, Zaha Haddad is one of the most famous she passed away recently but she's one of these architects that that builds uh, some of the most incredible structures that are skyscrapers but when you look at them you could imagine them in, in one of your favorite sci-fi novels or some spiritual, like in the Upanishads or something. Um, Zaha Hadid is her name. She's from, she's Iraqi by birth. and She passed away a couple years ago, but she was considered the preeminent with Rim Coolhouse architects in the world. Um, 
but that's something I think about a lot because in Los Angeles, you took this desert landscape with every imaginable natural system surrounding it, oceans, mountains, deserts, um, and you imposed a grid and then you get this thing that comes out of it. Um, but Los Angeles was interesting to me and I'm going to give a plug to a guy whose blog is no longer that well followed. It's called build blog. This guy, Jeff Manah, he's one of my favorite urban theorists. His, his blog is phenomenal going all the way back to 2004 and five. He actually taught at USC briefly and he was an editor for dwell and other things. Um, brilliant guy, brilliant at bringing together design and architecture interdisciplinarily. Um, but Los Angeles is this like tabula rasa that's constantly getting remade. And that's why I chose to go back there to grad school where I did undergrad there because we had this ability to creatively reinvent it all the time. And there was this interesting diffusion of energies from the environment into the spaces that allowed for some cool stuff. So there's a place out there called the Institute for Jurassic Technologies that did a lot of really cool design work. Um, and there was a lot of stuff uh, hearkening back to vernacular architecture and or um, things like Blade Runner and science fiction movies that got centralized into that city. And so that's what I was always looking for. You know, what does that kind of pattern thinking look like manifested in a city with, a, with you know, an ecological skin? Uh, and that's kind of the missing thing in, in that way of thinking is to make it more than just a building for a human to sit in on a computer, but can it sequester carbon, moisture? Can it also provide that backdrop for stabilizing human consciousness? Does it now provide habitat for animals? And so that's what, what I guess the dominant theme is, that is space localizes and contains energy. And that's the way that I've always tried to think about it. And oftentimes our spaces don't do that very well. So as a result, the symptoms are bad sleep, poor diet, our animals that may be pacing, you know, just feeling generally at ease, especially considering that we spend a lot of our life flat on our back asleep. Spaces ought to matter a lot more than that. Um, and the fact that design Traditionally, if you want to get into kind of genderized ways of conceptualizing, it is heavily masculine, including the materials. Um, so I think a lot about those kinds of things and how they bring themselves to bear um, in the spaces that we live. And then, you know, what can be done about that, at least at the level of home. And that's not even taking into account the ecosystem and then the much larger you know, regional ecosystems that are very hard to map as a person because they're just beyond our conceptual capacity. Um, so I'll stop there. I know there's a lot of, a lot of stuff. <laughs> That's awesome though. Uh, before we kind of do a deeper dive maybe into the home and how you might reimagine it if we're free to organize it and structure it based on, as you said, an unfolding as opposed to design. But let me ask you a question. So one of the things, a couple of things I heard you say, and I want to kind of bring them together. Um, it would, I would imagine kind of the industrial mindset, the, the meme for the industrial mindset is box thinking, like literally like <laughs> boxes, 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 boxes. Yep. And efficiency would seem to be a value, like an efficient use of the space without recognizing the uniqueness of any one individual or individuals, either our humanness or ecological niches we, we are part of <coughs> or our animals. Yep. And I'm and I'm just wondering because I know you're working on tons of spaces with that box thinking that's now reflected in how we live. 
Can you speak about that same box thinking in the conventional sense, how it's showing up in other areas of our life too? And that, because one of the themes of the show is post-conventional thinking. Mm -hmm. And like, if we break that paradigm and go, okay, let's go from design to unfolding, what might that also look like in other areas of life too? So this is a great way of kind of leading into this. So one thing I do want to say, because I don't want to look as like I'm this simplistic black and white thinker that I just, you know, it's either the box or it's not a box. Okay. To give you an example. So Le Cabousier, you know, the French kind of urban theorist, urban designer that is famous for things like the Cabrini Green projects in Chicago and these places that we largely view as a, as a brutalist architecture kind of prison-like, no life, sterile efficiency, almost like a slaughterhouse, right? Uh, Lifeless is, there's something about that. He he described homes as machines for living. And so I think rather than to throw the baby out with the bathwater, I think that's not a bad idea, but machines are not alive. Machines are dependent upon the programmer and the engineer of themselves, right? So they don't have... So one of the things that I think about, at least is beginning to think about the box and how to make the box more alive. There's a guy named Jaron Lanier, who I really like, who's a technologist. He really is probably the guy that should be created with, or is seen as the creator of virtual reality. He has a very famous book called You Are Not a Gadget, which is about as a user of technology and tools, I have power and I need to understand that I need to understand also the logic of the tool. So while we have boxes and efficiency, some of the good things about that are is when you look at a traditionally built home or structure, the amount of waste generated is astronomical. Just drive around the outside of where we are right here. This is the former uh, airport in Austin that was decommissioned when they built the modern airport as Austin's grown. And so they're building all these houses in a new urbanist style with re- it almost looks a little bit also like the Truman show here. But if you look at the amount of waste from each home that's constructed, it, it's one you know, 25 by 10 construction waste trailer that's taken off per house. If you look at things like 3D printed structures or parametric design, which takes a home, breaks it into a bunch of puzzle pieces, then prints or manufactures those where there's zero waste, that's where it can become interesting. So I would advise like listeners or people that are interested, look at parametric design. The only criticism I have of it is it is still very human. It is sort of detached from nature, but it's really interesting as you can get all these beautiful designs and curves with very good efficiency. And so you can take that box and that efficiency model and basically infuse the creative kind of spirit into it and more powerful patterns and still come out with something that's really cool. And if you look at, uh, and there's places throughout the world like Findhorn, which is a spiritual community, Domenher in southern France, where they have this temples of man. There's a lot of places where that kind of sacred element has been recovered. And, and I know you've been talking about potentially going to like Pacifica to look at a PhD. Well, one of the things that Joseph Campbell said is you can look at what a society values by its architecture. So we went from cathedrals to Wall Street, right, to skyscrapers. Um, and so I think that we have great examples of, of architecture that worked, um, that was mass and reproduced. Like if you look in a uh, death Valley, the kilns that, that laborers actually fired charcoal and they look like honeycombs and beehives. 
And those are reproduced across space. I mean, they're identical. There's no difference. People weren't living in them. They were firing in them. But people actually have used that structure, the teepee, um, other like the malokas in the jungle and things like that. And those are fantastic spaces to live in because of the shape, the spiral shape, the vaulted ceilings. So I think the box can be standardized with certain elements. And where I would say to look to that, some listeners may be turned off by woo, some may not be, but human design is something that I became very fond of, uh, which is based on your natal chart information. One of the things in there that human design has that I think is actually really powerful is it talks about where and what your habitat should look like. So I'll give you two examples. For me, it's dry kitchens. Why does that matter? Because for most of my life, even from the age of five or six, I always wanted to live in a giant loft like in New York City when I was a kid. And then just in Los Angeles, I had a more of a loft space, but an environment where I could just move everything around, have a lab over here, an area for TV, reading, sleeping, but move that around. And that's a dry kitchen. It's like living in a lab. Then there are people that live in what they like, they need to live on the interface of the city and the, and the country. People need to live closer to the ocean or up in the mountains. And so thinking of that, what type of structures work best there. And I found that oftentimes the kind of structures that people gravitate towards architecturally do map pretty generally to that human design. Um, so that I'm, getting, huh? I'm talking to next week. Oh, yes. I have a session with John. <laughs> yeah. So I think that it's just a matter of humans. I, and it's, there, it's really simplistic to say this, but it's very clear that architecture and agriculture are two processes of enclosure and control. And is there negative capitalist kind of drives that are infusing that now? Yes. But in the beginning, I think it was very... Um, kind of understandable to want to understand when you were going to be able to eat and what and to be able to be in a shelter when it was raining or cold or hot or whatever right so I think that it's just trying to unlock the human and get away from that kind of standardization and and kind of dogmatic thinking that ends up informing cities and and then there's all these other threads right the codes really dominate what we can design and the codes are often not all that related to the environment itself. I mean, obviously in Los Angeles, you want to have seismic codes yeah, yeah, because yeah. your building needs to withstand an earthquake, probably fires now. Um, but I think that, you know, a lot of that kind of forecloses our, our potential to evolve within the context of a city and a social organization because the logic is already determining the future. You mentioned in your intro about birth trauma, pre-birth trauma, right? That's going to epigenetically switch the genes on and off before that person even has a chance to have an agency about that. Well, it's the same in the structures that we live in. We get to maybe choose if we're financially well enough off what structure we want to choose, but we're still choosing from such a limited possibility. Um, and, you know, we have a history of that. I'm not saying everybody likes this. Some people do love the high rise sterile environment like you know and is that a product of human disconnection or nature probably is it entirely no you know some people like that so i don't want to pretend that my way of thinking about this is the only way but that's why i like parametric design and modularization um, especially if there is some room to kind of play around with the elements themselves and if there's a literacy 
about how we can go about that as people who may not be trained in architecture or landscape architecture. And it gets back to that idea we talked about in the first podcast was scientific literacy, citizen science. You know, how do we, how do we want to design and how do we want to live? One of the best examples of this, of taking a box that was not working, infusing it with different flows of information, including transit and, and parks is Curitiba, Brazil. It's a very famous, you're never going to meet somebody who hasn't gone through an urban studies program that doesn't know about it. It's a bit of a cliche, but when I learned about it in 2001, it blew my mind because Curitiba has 3 million people. They were a pretty poor city in Southern Brazil. They changed the entire bus and transit network. Instead of channelizing all the rivers to prevent flooding, they allowed the flooding to occur by creating this gigantic network of parks into a green belt. And lo and behold, it has one of the highest qualities of life in the world. And it's the third most educated city in the world. Wow. And they've done a bunch of other things dealing with the favelas and, and other things. So that's an example of having a box, realizing the box represents a demarcated space. And then within that box, you could do something. Um, redesigning it and understanding flows. And that gets back to human metabolism human right life is a flow of circadian rhythms of light and dark cycles related to that of foodstuffs transforming food coming seasons you know cities could totally be more matched up with that and i think that we'd see a lot less problems and we probably wouldn't even have to think about solving the problem it would solve itself if that makes sense like does is my dog happy well maybe if it just was put in that situation it would be um, Last thing I'll say related to that, because you're heavily into the mind and, and self-mastery and, and just working on various tools for that. There's a famous book on depth psychology and Jungian psychology, and, and the name forget, it escapes me. I may have to get it to you in the show notes or something. But basically, there was a place where schizophrenics were sent. It was a place where they were guaranteed to have food and safety. There was no direct uh, clinical care. It was a giant environment several acres and they just wandered around space all day long but they were safe about 60 to 70 percent of those patients schizophrenia fully resolved within two and a half years as they wandered around and found integrity in their own minds um and so that's one of the things i always think about when when people are wondering how do we solve climate change transportation issues the fossil fuel economy in some ways, if the right parameters are there and you allow these becomings to happen, they kind of solve themselves. Of course, we're having a limited people, full control over the logic of the environment. You know, complex cities don't allow themselves to that level of simplistic governance. But that being said, that's another interesting thing of how can space reorganize a fractured mind? That was a great example and it. it's been studied. Yes. Having studied, having worked with folks dealing with mental illness, including schizophrenia, day treatment facilities, and all that stuff, never heard of that. Man, that would have been awesome to hear. Yep. Um, but what do you, so with that, do you think it was, you know, the individual's access to, to, to the dirt? So they got microbiome, changes in their microbiome, fresh air, exercise. Do you have any thoughts what, about that environment? Probably all of the above. I mean, it, this was a very rural environment. So, and this was 
started in the 80s and 90s, so we didn't have ubiquitous electric. Well, we had radar and other forms of Wi-Fi radiation, but surrounded by the sounds of nature, safe, I think, is the number one. Um, because if you watch people that are mentally ill, especially if they're unable to have a home or a roof over their head, you know, it's got to be frightening and terrifying and whatever it is that's at the center of that and being a genetics person, I know there's a lot of chemical and brain imbalances, right? And there's a chicken or the egg. Did the trauma cause that? Did that, that cause the trauma? Both and. But the point is, is that the safety, I think, allows the nervous system to start being retuned by the natural environment. Because if you really understand epigenetics at its core, and the human environment kind of interface that that represents, the environment should theoretically possess all that's required to reprogram a genome for total health, right? So when we talk about eating better and more related to our genomic kind of uh, birthright, we look at our circadian rhythms and all those things. What I joke with clients is if, if we had met each other, you know, 20,000, 30,000 years ago, you wouldn't have cared or needed my help yeah. to understand genetics because you would have had all these important fundamental reprogrammatic effects. So even the clinic that we run here in Austin, basically all it is is localizing epigenetic forces and then amplifying them onto the body. And then that's, that's what it's about. So I think that's what's happening there. And if you think of books like Last Child in the Woods, right? You take kids with behavioral problems, you take individuals with anxiety, and anxiety disorders uncontrolled by drugs and diet and intervention. And you put them out in the woods and hiking for a while and they're out there long enough and they're without technological kind of interface, they tend to kind of reorganize. So it's very clear that the brain and the nervous system are dramatically affected by the impact and trees in particular. And we know for a fact, look at coronavirus and the SARS infections in 05, we know that in fact, these ecological zones are not only buffers for the psyche, they're buffers for the immune system. The trees produce aerosols that, that deactivate viruses that are in the air. They provide buffers between species that should not come into contact. So I think that all that's happening in any case of fragmentation is that that person is getting re-embedded in a system that they're meant to be in. And perhaps that also kind of has an effect. The other thing on a more metaphysical level it's a kind of common trope in shamanic thinking that all of our best shaman are the schizoids that are living in institutions, right? So I think what that represents to me is the shaman is the emissary that goes in between the world, the other worlds, and the human environment, right? And brings back messages and cures. And that's the spell of the sensuous. Uh, David Abrams goes into that a lot. Um, but I think that that's that those types of folks as well do better when they're embedded. And there's a reason why when people travel to the jungle, especially from the West, though I mostly view it as a temporary band-aid, they can get healing from ayahuasca and things like that. Um, but they're coming back to a different type of environment. But I do, you know, the clear argument here is the built environment matters a lot. It's probably not what it needs to be. And now we've got a lot of other things aside from the design and the spatial elements that are also impacting us. And I think also with that, and maybe this can be a segment to what I think is important, this idea of second and third nature, there's a very famous book called Nature's Metropolis 
that's required reading in geography, urban studies, architecture at the PhD level in grad school. It's a fantastic book, William Cronin. It looks at how cities aggregating populations then externalize waste. They require the conversion of natural systems into products. And it looks at Chicago specifically, pre and industrial Chicago, the slaughterhouses, the steel industry, the railroads. And it looks at this idea of second and third nature where we live in a city and no longer is nature something that we conceptualize appropriately. It's a resource sink. If you're an ecological thinker, nature's services are provided for it, right? But there's an idea that humans can survive without ecosystems that gets kind of embedded in city dwellers' minds. Then, they, then that translates into, oh, I've got a roach in my house. Let me spray it with Raid. I've got an insect. Let me kill it. There's a spider. Oh, my God. You know, whatever. Um, that conversion and urbanization of human life definitely also creates all these other fractures. And doesn't even allow us to even think about the natural world, which has already are, been kind of demonized and vilified all the way back into the biblical times. The Garden of Eden also being the Garden of Temptation, right? So there's these really twisted concepts of nature. And I can understand it as a person who's been afraid in my life. The natural world is dark, scary, silent, non-human, especially when it's intact. That's a hard place to feel safe in, right? Um, and then when you have the idea that you're a creator and in the image of God and all those things, that might pose some problems. Um, but very simplistic stuff there. But I'm just kind of thinking about how all this is intersecting into making a design because it's all there. And as someone who spent time with training architects, graduate level training architects at places like Cornell and USC, very elite Harvard, this stuff's never talked about. And in fact, one funny story, and then I'll turn it back over. I was in a class with 250 people at USC. All the architecture students had to take it. Doug and Regula Campbell taught it. They did the landscape for the City of Angels Cathedral in Los Angeles and a bunch of other. They're very well-known landscape architects in Los Angeles. The second day of class, they gave us a nasturtium seed, a coconut core pot, and soil. And they said, plant the seed, take care of it. You'll need it at the end of the semester. So the class was all about pattern thinking, pattern languages. We watched, uh, I, I was able to show a film called Yellow Earth, which is a Chinese film about the landscapes of Northern China. It's a very beautiful meditation on the landscape and the people inside of it. So we all get there and on the last day, maybe 25 of us still had living nasturtium plants. And I'm not even gonna pretend that I was some kind of plant gene. A nasturtium is very easy to grow, put it in a window, keep it watered. The rest of the people's plants died. They thought it was a joke. They all failed the class. Oh man, good for the teacher. But in landscape architecture, even landscape architecture, plants are not viewed as living beings with agency that require context and placement. And all you got to do is drive around and look at some of the big land. Some are like Pete Oldoff, who's my favorite landscape designer. He's a Dutch new urbanist. He was a nurseryman. He grew perennials. They know what they're doing. They're, he did the High Line in New York City. Um, 
but largely even in the landscape field the plants are treated as objects it's much more about hardscape the plants are kind of the dressing you know the the crown on the top of the tree um so it was interesting though that that was the only place where i encountered like all the epistemological concerns that the designers are actually dealing with but not recognizing so it gets also back to why do we have structures and architecture or places and spaces that look like this because we have disciplinary separations. So somebody like you approaches things from the mind and spirituality, this stuff seems perfectly normal and infused and connected, right? But you'd be surprised. So I think that's also part of it is that Western mechanical model of separating the machine for living rather than a, a living structure. Um, which is a very different concept. I think that those are uh, ideas that, that are really born out of not having interdisciplinarity taught to us as young people in, in schooling environments. Well, There's no comfort in it. Hopefully that's changing. Um, it is, I think it is yeah. for sure. Um, so but that's a lot of stuff I've thrown out there, but these are just <laughs> some of the threads that are things that I've been exploring for a lot of years and trying to figure out like what can be done and how can we participate especially when it's very clear that climate change is real we have finite time can we survive it i don't know uh, but where are some places we can actually take a step and see what unfolds after that yeah so besides obviously changing the codes which would be necessary for a lot of the things you're discussing to to reflect living systems as opposed to uh, machines recognizing obviously hurricanes, floods, natural yeah. disasters, and the need for exactly. protecting structures, yeah. those kind of things. Besides, so besides changing codes, or if you're well off enough to go uh, buy some land and build like a, like a um, um, earth ship or something else, yeah. some yeah. other really interesting designs, yeah. which is great. Uh, if you can't do those two things for now, or you know, maybe those take a longer time, what might you recommend individuals do who are watching or listening to this to start thinking differently about how they actually live inside their own homes, their own communities. And one of the things I just kind of remind you of, and this is a piece to your answer, is ecological restoration. <coughs> Excuse me. You talk about intelligent tinkering. I think there's an answer in that book yeah. that speaks to the question that I just asked you. Absolutely. So, yeah, intelligent tinkering is written by a prominent restoration ecologist. And I like the idea of tinkering because tinkering requires observation trial and error. It also has a levity and playfulness to it that I think is also important here. But I think a couple of things to think about, at least considering who you are, Michael, and, and, and me, and, and having an interest in personal development and trying to self-actualize, a lot of us have things that we want to do that we don't end up doing every day. You know, for me, it, it's been writing or making music. Um, a lot of that is because the space I live in is not conducive to it. So I would think about some frustrations that you butt up against and you beat yourself up about that maybe you're not able to do, whether it's getting up at the right time or going to bed at the right time or working out or eating better. And maybe think about how could my space be playing a role in this? Nice. Um, simply. The other thing, and I, I want to say this with a grain of salt, I, I do think having plants in your home environment is very important. But I also think it's equally as important to understand that they're alive and they require care and that they also require consideration. So if you need a full light, highlight plant, 
and you have a bathroom or a dark bedroom, don't buy that plant. But I think incorporating plants into the environment for the obvious aesthetic, but for the cleaning of the air and for the relationship to caring for another living thing outside yourself is important because it, it's kind of a thread back to what, what's missing yeah. um, in that natural environment. And then maybe even think about, you know, what would an ideal space be like for you? Uh, I think people fan of HGTV is clearly, I watch it all the time. I love space transformation that before and after, you know, that, that kind of experience of fantasizing and envisioning the, the ideal environment. I think just playing around in those creative spaces and seeing where they intersect. I also think it's important to understand Ikea is extremely successful because there's a simple logic in what they make and it's 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 a modular kind of way of using furniture but there's a reason why people like it because it's impersonal enough to be infused with personal effect but it also tends to have a lot of utilitarian kind of benefit outside of the object itself and so I just think about again I'm, I'm big about thinking about your space and how you move through it just as a way to bring another level of awareness to what you're doing every day. Um, and, and, and simple things like, are there places you've been that you particularly felt alive in, you know, as a visitor, whether you stayed in a little cottage somewhere in the country or apartments that you may have liked or school environments or workplaces that you're effective in just thinking about, or things you you like that you see on television architecturally, I think, are ways in to start finding a better relationship with space. And oftentimes the space you have can be reorganized um, it, you know, in a way that's more usable. And along those lines, cause I just want to make sure we uh, add in our, our domesticated animal kins to this conversation. Um, we, 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 my wife and I agree with you on HGTV. We also watch Animal Planet. And I think it's Animal <laughs> Planet that has uh, My Cat from Hell. Yes, uh, I love one it. One of the shows. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it's interesting for when, when he comes into someone's home and he creates a habitat specifically for the cat in that in the person's home or, or apartment or condo, whatever it happens to be. That's very specific to the cat's needs as yeah. a cat yeah. <laughs> and how it changes the behavior of that cat in terms of in terms of, you know, doesn't pee on the floor and yeah. doesn't get violent attacks on the owners or the guardians yeah. i mean it just changes the whole dynamic of the relationship between the cat and the, and the, and the guardian can yeah. you speak a little bit of how we can also re-envision our homes for our domesticated kin too yeah so that my cat from hell is a is perfect example i think one thing to to put in the foreground those of us that are kind of that rescue animals or adopt shelter animals you know it's pretty safe to assume that your animal's been traumatized even at the simple level of being abandoned. Yeah. Um, and so with cats, and, and I'm not going to pretend that I'm a canine and cat expert. I mean, I, I do the best that I can. I, do, I, I have enough interest to pay attention, but I, I'm not an animal behaviorist, you know, even mm -hmm. though I try to play one at times. Um, I think with cats, you know, there's some very clear things, verticality, things to climb. Cats are incredibly athletic beings. They also tend more often than dogs to be solitary and they tend to be very big sponges for the environment. A funny fact that I learned from Julie the other day is that cats are seen as the originators of Reiki, the energy practice. Um, in fact, there's a book that the lady kind of makes that and that cats kind of make fun of us when we practice it because they're better than us. But I, 
why I bring that up is they, they're very sensitive to the environment, they're sponges. And so I do think cats, to borrow a term of Virginia Wolf, they need a room of their own. Hmm. Um, and at the very least, I've never not had a cat that doesn't enjoy tunnels, climbing, and multi-verticality. Nice. Um, they particularly feel safe. Often big cats, as you've seen, right? They sleep in the trees. And not just from hiding from hunters, that's where they sleep. Um, dogs, one of the most powerful things I've seen, just to keep it simple, is a, is a cornucopia of smells. Mm. Dogs, you know, simplistically have such powerful uh, senses of smell. And I know that that's one of their most important daily needs is to have novel smell to pick up and to track. Um, people always laugh when their heads are out the window, right? Smell on the air, but they're just taking all that in. So I think finding some plants that the animals can safely interact with, obviously vantage points where they can look out because dogs and cats love to get in the sun. So a sunning spot, you know, I think there's some simple things. I mean, obviously a lot of us are limited being in apartments or things like that in space, but I think in, inside just having access to, to sunlight, to maybe some environments that they can novelly kind of organize themselves. Um, I know dogs love to dig. I mean, there's, oh, yeah. there's lots of things. Yeah. Um, and even things that they can potentially kind of tear up without getting in trouble. Um, and then if there's multiple animals, yeah, I think it's important to have very defined spaces for each of the animals, unless they like to really be cuddled up together, which some do. Cats seem to really need more individual space, the more cats there are, unless they're like a, a pair of bonded family or a bonded family then they share that close quarters better. But those are just some simple things that I think of. Um, and of course, you know, if one of the things that I've learned, cause all of my cats kind of, one of them's a family of five, the mama had her boys and they're all still together. But our 10 year old, a rescue cat, he requires, like I say, fully interactive play. And his favorite play interface is tunnels. He has to have the tunnels and he has to have the interaction, these toys that move on their own. He's not interested in the lasers, not interested. And that's interesting because if you didn't interact with him one-on-one -on -one, and I'm not as good as Julia is about it, he, you know, he, he, he would seem like he's just sleeping all day long, mm -hmm. but he'll, he'll play two or three hours a day if he's given an opportunity. And it's a lot of it's mimicking hunting and prowling and chasing. And what's interesting is he eats his raw food more regularly and completely in between play hmm. it's just out and he's not working out kind of that idea of earning your calories he doesn't always eat it hmm. and we always laugh five minutes of play food time you know he goes and eats and he's back um, so i just think space and and, I, and watching shows like that and giving your animals the benefit of the doubt and just really that idea that they are our family and, and they're people quote unquote you know they're they're their own whatever they are but i think it's important to acknowledge that and to see what they like and i watch a lot of rescue shows just to get insights into i saw one the other day actually an instagram story where a dog had basically just been in a puppy mill and it was very abused and it would only move in a a, a space as big as its body and, and it would never, and they would kept trying to get it to go in other places in the house. And they sent it to this guy in Florida who's similar to the cat guy, but works with animals that are terrified from abuse. And then that dog was exploring more freely. So I think some of that too, 
understanding like how to open the spaces up for exploration, especially with rescue animals that may have been subject to abuse or, yeah. or crating or something where they haven't had mobility. Those are just some things, you know, and there's probably thousands of others. Uh, those are great. But, but making it rich, just as you'd want to make your environment pleasing to the five senses. Um, and then, I, you know, I don't know things like music, who knows, I haven't really explored that angle. Like what, what particular music would animals find? I know that on the plant side, but um, those are just things I think about, you know, at a simple level. So where can folks find out more about your work? Uh, well, the health stuff is cosmicanimal.com with a K. Um, unfortunately, and I may, this, this interview today makes me want to restart it. I have another website, but it's not up right now called Wild Minds Project. Oh, but there's nothing up on it. It's it's a place where I was going to put all that dissertation work. And I actually feel after today that I should get back into doing some of this. So that's something to keep an eye on. But if you want to get in touch with me, Cosmic Animal with a K is the place. Um, and I just want to say just a couple of things to, to point people to, like some stuff that I find cool that might be worth either donating to, exploring. So we didn't get into full-on ecological restoration. We talked about built environment, but there's something called analog agroforestry, which is where we take four or five plants that can anchor a, a damaged ecosystem and allow it to evolve back to a healthy biodiverse system that has been used in Brazil and other places that's well worth exploring. Um, something called silva pasturing, which is rotational grazing with uh, tree or nut or sorry, fruit or nut producing trees and alleys uh, with with animal polycultures. That's a part of regenerative agriculture that is worth exploring for those folks that are hearing that in the paleo world. Um, more specifically, silva pasturing is a really wonderful way to produce food and, and crops and gar and, and sorry uh, fibers. And then the last thing. One of the coolest places I've ever seen in my life is called the ancient, or sorry, the Archangel Ancient Tree Archive. It was started by this guy who literally had a near-death experience, and they go around all over the world getting uh, and producing clones of the oldest trees on the earth and propagating them. And it's a very expensive process, one to two percent success rate. But they're, they've cloned all the old growth redwoods in California and, and they clone them. They grow millions of these trees and they replant them. The guy uh, who, who started it has a wonderful book and I, the name escapes me, but it's on there. There's a great documentary. But if you're looking for a way to support restoration work and you don't have the means or capacity to do it directly, that place is well worth exploring and supporting. So those are just a couple of things that are out there that are ways I think that it could truly help regenerate the planet that are very simple and affordable and doable at the level of even a balcony. Um, I'll make sure that we include all those links in the yep. show notes. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Ryan, uh, great to see you and talk to you again. Absolutely. It's fun. Always uh, learn tons. And let me encourage folks to both check out your site to, to work with you one-on-one, -on -one, but also check out all the wonderful resources that you recommend recommended on a wide variety of topics we discussed today. I'm going to close out today's show with a song from my favorite singer-songwriter, Stuart Davis. It's called Easter. It's uh, with Stuart, and it features Saul Williams. Oh, wow. April's navel, Easter parade on cable, lay still, I'll shape you. His hand slips beneath the underdog. She lets him. 
A steady hand can conjure the sun from behind a cloud. April showers, we sat in church for hours trading tales of communion. Afraid of the sight of blood, yet she loves the feeling. Who conjures who? This one's afraid to resurrect. We dangle carrots before the cage. The rabbit licks its hind legs and crosses to the puddle of urine. Pregnancy is a scent before anything else. Something should not be reborn unless the process is most certainly immaculate. Ego taints the saints, the rabbit dies, she faints, he crosses the room, cavalry with bedposts. She sees him staring out the window when she comes to, she beckons, he hesitates. And in that moment she knows another child has been taught to fear God. She says, I love you, but I cannot mother your fears. April showers, April tears. In the midst of perfection, this princess starts bitching in the arms of Elijah. This something, this master that's teaching is a pupil repeating. This boxer loves headlines, but it couldn't take a punchline. Somebody slap me, you can't stop laughing. Suicide is back in fashion. All our sanders end up sinking in a big slob wonder what this thinking. Two crows sit at the window, keeping the bitch out over your widow. Two coins dropping the casket over your sockets, bury that bastard. Two crows ready for restart, thinking you Jesus, filling your Caesar. Yeah. Yeah. Let it do Easter.